Okay. Any thoughts or questions from this thing with Nicodemus? Is it okay if I go for Yes, indeed. Okay, I had a question, and I'm so glad you covered it today about, um, although I'm having a hard time finding the right paper, about um, the the pole with the serpent on top of it in the wilderness and then how Christ lifted up on the cross and how it was said he became sin and, and how maybe the serpent's a symbol of sin, although I can't think of scripture. The serpent's, that, well, I think the point is the serpent's the picture of the judgment. Judgment, okay. Um, the, so the people come to Moses and they recognize the guilt of their sin. They don't say, hey, why are you sending us these serpents? They say, we've been wrong. In other words, there's a sense of this is right. Okay. And in, in one respect, all of God's judgment of sin, as long as you're still alive, is a mercy and a call to repentance. It's similar to Jonah, right? He goes and yet 30 days, and then he'll be overthrown. And they see in that, why give us 30 days? Maybe there's a chance we can repent. So the serpents are coming, and yet this is actually the impetus for the confession and repentance of the people. But God is going to teach them something, I think, in preparation for Christ, the thing you're going to look at, it's not like he's got an anti-venom that he puts on a stick right. or some saving bomb. The very mark of your guilt, the very mark of the judgment of your guilt is what you're going to look to. Is, okay, then, again, we're so used to crucifixes and crosses as little pieces of jewelry, but this is how the worst scum of the earth were put to death torturously. To, to look to that is more offensive than the, the serpent, you know? Um, and yet this is what we have to look to. And then I think in the same sense, own, this is fitting. This is just, this, this is what I should receive. Okay. Th that's where I see the points of parallel. Um, so this, the serpent, I don't think is linking back to like the serpent in the garden or anything. Okay. The serpent's the, the way God judged them. You want the judgment to go away look to and recognize the justice of that judgment and look to this alternate substitute. I mean, it's starting to set up looking away from yourself to something else, but what you're looking to is still humbling you. Look to the very mark of your judgment, right? Something like that? Yeah, thank you. And okay. there's one third thing that okay. I wondered if you could comment on, yeah. and that is um, the medical symbol that's pretty much a stick with a snake going around it. And I wonder if that goes back to biblical Roots. No, I don't, th I don't, I don't think so. You don't think so? It's Greek. Oh, okay. Yeah. Far, much, far too much credit to medical. <laughs> okay. Okay, in the back with Matt Kay. Yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on more about the we speak what we know. <laughs> sure. Like, is there, is it possible he, when he's saying we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Maybe... I don't, as some have said, well, maybe the disciples are there. And he, I, I think them, I, I like Carson's most straightforward tweet. He's kind of teasing Nick. Okay. So, so Nicodemus shows up with a little bit of pomposity. And, and one of the challenges for me is I don't want to vilify him too much, but I also don't want him to be like, he's hopeful that he's there at night and maybe no, he, he represents the darkness right here. And now he represents someone who doesn't receive or believe Jesus. Right. Um, and I think Jesus, as he's preparing to claim his own greater authority, there's a little bit of, uh, okay, I'll start speaking wheeze. As, I'm, as he's about to say he's come down from heaven, he alone speaks for God, he sort of, again, um, that teasing is maybe too wrong. There's a gentle rebuke in it. He, he, 
He's highlighting to Nicodemus some of his superciliousness, some of his pomposity. As Jesus, claiming much greater status, starts using the we's. That I, it, could it be veiled Trinitarian? Well, maybe, but I think in the first instance, there's in the near context, there's something that it's referencing. Because Nicodemus, we... So I, I, didn't, I didn't point this out in the message, but you see how in, in the, the insert under 2A... I underlined know and see. Well, Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, we know. So Jesus' parallel is, well, we know something too. Nicodemus doesn't say he's seen anything, but if I'm right that 223 to 25 is the introduction, then Nicodemus is one of those who, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, saw signs. So then Jesus' response of knowing and seeing is referencing Nicodemus has seen something and he knows something. And now Jesus is going to say, let me tell you what I've seen and what I know. And so there is a sort of retort or a, um, he's, I, I think that's the nearest, clearest thing that he is reflecting off of and speaking to. So given that I'm not looking for anything further, I, I wouldn't think there's probably much of a veiled Trinitarian notion here because Jesus doesn't keep it up. He just does it here in this one spot, and then the we's are gone again. So then why would you just say we briefly? Well, given how closely it parallels to what Nicodemus said, I think because if the whole point of this is, Nicodemus, you've got too high of an estimation of yourself. You, you've come here to size me up. You've come here to figure out who I am, and you've never bothered to ask yourself, am I qualified? Am I ready? If God has sent his Messiah, if God's kingdom is about to advance— Am I in a position and in a state where I'm ready to see that? And Jesus is saying, you're not, right? And so not only are you not ready to see it, you, you need something done to you. You need to be cleansed. You need God to cleanse you with water and his spirit. You need to be born again. And you can't make that happen. So all of this is humbling Nicodemus. And in that context, Jesus says, now let me speak of what we know, what we've seen. I think there's a... Jesus is claiming to be of a whole different category of authority. That's where he moves to, no one's gone up to heaven, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. There's only one person on planet that are speaking for God right now, and it's me. And you don't receive my testimony, and you don't believe my report, right? So, so in that context, I think primarily he's making it clear to Nicodemus, I'm greater than you, and you're not receiving my Anyway, sorry, I'm... I'm being redundant and repeating myself. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. I'm going, sorry. Other questions, thoughts with this? Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy 18 then. What am I hearing? Oh, Dave Lample's not going to like that. Mark my words, you'll see somebody you'll see somebody leave that worship center and take the stairs. Mark my words. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 18. I don't think John is is hitting off this, but I do think it's equally biblical. The uh, one of the one well maybe he is actually, because what are the what are the three questions that the Jews from Jerusalem asked John the Baptist? Are you the Messiah, are you the Christ? Are you prophet? Are you Elijah? Right? What's the prophet? 
Deuteronomy 18. Um, and in Deuteronomy 18, hold on. Yeah, we get this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And then what's your responsibility to this prophet God raises up? It's to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him." So what's your fundamental obligation when God raises up the prophet? It's to hear him, to listen. And listen means more than just the, 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 the sounds come in. To listen is like, why didn't you listen to me? To, to receive and believe and act upon what he says. So when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So the obligation when God raises up this prophet like Moses is to hear him. And, and what's Jesus saying to Nicodemus and to the people Nicodemus is standing in front of? You haven't received my testimony. You don't believe. So there's, this gets back to the notion that believing Jesus, it's interesting to speak not just of believing in Jesus, but believing Jesus is something that is an ethical issue you know, you're, you're obligated. If, if he is who he says he is, then we are obligated to receive his testimony. This is the basis why Paul can say in Acts, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. In one sense, the gospel is an invitation. In another sense, it's a command. Who are you to say no to the king? Who are you to say no to his prophet? Like, you know, so... Um, so that's part of what's going on here with the issue of authority. And, and the issue of authority in John's gospel gets raised again and again and again and again. Jesus, it's part of John's theme of hammering the deity of Christ. We have a couple instances where we don't even know what Jesus taught. What we pick up on is the discussion afterwards of, okay, what authority do you have to say these things? Um, and if we have no more questions, we can look at some of those. But any, any questions on this come up, or should we go look at some of those things? Jake. As Nicodemus being a very um, elite and erudite sort of man, can you comment on the, the role that his own ego may have played in this interaction? I, I'm trying to avoid too much guesswork. So he, and, and, and like, again, I, I don't want to vilify. What I'm insistent on is in this encounter, He's representing those people from Jerusalem. And the summary of this encounter, which we're going to look at on New Year's Day, 319 to 21, gives us two lanes. There, there are two responses. What's, what is interesting, I'll pause. Because there's no quotation marks in Greek, um, we don't know if and when Jesus stops talking here and when John the narrator picks up. Now, if I had to bet, my money is that John 316 is John the gospel writer. Because of the, oh, I know. You, I'm not authoritative. I'm gonna, I'll tell you why I think. It is entirely plausible Jesus is still speaking. If you've got a red-letter Bible, there's still red letters. The reason why I'd say that is the, the term only begotten, monogenes in Greek, is a unique John title Jesus nowhere else uses of himself. 
Jesus speaks of himself always as the son of man. So in John 3.16, God's only begotten. Now, where else have we seen that term? Oh yeah, the prologue in John 1. So the vocabulary shift to me suggests John, the gospel writer, is now speaking. The only difference it makes is this. If, if Jesus is still speaking, then when we get to the judgment in 19, Nicodemus may not yet have crossed that line. Jesus may be holding it out for him like, Nicodemus, this is going to resolve one of two ways. In other words, if John the gospel writer is, is speaking when we get to 19, then clearly Nicodemus is not of the coming to the light to show that your deeds are done in God. Nicodemus is the guy who came by night. And so clearly we know which path Nicodemus is on. But it's possible if Jesus is speaking, saying this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, it's something like Nicodemus, you need to choose. In which case he's at the fork in the road, but he hasn't necessarily crossed and resolved it yet. So in that sense, it may be more hopeful for him exegetically, that's about the only difference I see in whether you decide Jesus is speaking or John the Baptist. Whether it's the words of the second person of the Trinity or just the words of the third person of the Trinity, it's still the word of God. So I don't want to ruin this Jesus. It may well be Jesus. But if I had to guess, I'd 60, 40, 55, 45, I'd go with John the gospel writer speaking at 16, but whatever. Um, so, okay. Any Yes, Linda. It's like, but mine says it's red. Purple. Linda's got a purple letter Bible. <laughs> Am I right? No. No, okay. You're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Um. Okay, is there any significance to, so when Moses was going before Pharaoh for each of the plagues, then he went out and prayed and God took away whatever was happening. But in this case with the serpent, he didn't take away the snakes. He just told them they needed to pray to the... Oh, I think, I think there is. That's another point I wanted to hit that I went long as it was, so I, I tried to spare you all. But no, it's, it's, there are times where like Pharaoh says, go pray, and the judgment gets taken. But because part, I think, of what the Lord wants this to picture, he knows this is going to prefigure. I mean, I wouldn't say this is prophetic. This isn't predicting something. Rather, it's setting up a pattern that a later thing can point back to. So it's not that the serpent in the wilderness is a prophetic prediction. No, it's a pattern, a way of doing things that Jesus can say, what God's going to do with me is like that. What Jesus' ministry is, is there's continuity between the Old Testament and what Jesus is doing. But one of the points is this, no one can look for you. So if you're an Israelite, you got to look yourself. No one can look for you. There's no vicarious looking. And certainly when it comes to Jesus, there's no vicarious believing that, that someone can believe for you. And so that, whereas in other miracles and other judgments, that isn't present. Moses could go intercede and, the, you know, the, 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 the frogs go away. Although I love with Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs to go away? Tomorrow afternoon. Like, why are you waiting? But no, it's tomorrow afternoon, yeah. Um, but here, no, each and every individual Israelite needs to look themselves. Yeah. And then also he, so they were asking Moses to go pray for them instead of, them praying for themselves. That could be a mark of humility. It, it could be not. It might be like, we, we, if, if we recognize we're this guilty and you're the one who's favored of God, who isn't getting bitten. I'd noticed in Moses, you don't have any snakes hanging off you. If you're in God's good graces, might you go pray for me, please? 
It could be that, or it could be some sign of unbelief. Moses is a legitimate mediator. He goes in and stands before God at the tent of meeting. He comes back to them. So I don't see anything fundamentally disrespectful or unbelieving in going to the mediator and asking him to mediate. Um, okay. Other thoughts, questions? Um, do you guys know what became of the bronze serpent? No. Second Kings. Let's take a look at Second Kings eighteen. Sometimes people ask me why why do I think it is that God didn't cause the original writings to be preserved? Like the the autograph. Like why don't we have Paul's handwritten copy? Although he who wrote quick Bible trivia, who wrote the book of Romans? No. Yeah, who put ink to paper? Tertius, Romans 16, Paul's amanuensis, his scribe. I, Tertius. So there's, there's a trivia question. Who actually physically wrote it? Tertius did. Paul authored it. Holy Spirit authored it, sure. Um, but why, someone, sometimes people ask me when we're dealing with textual critical issues, well, why don't we have that? We can get back really close. My guess, I got a guess for why we don't have like the copy of Romans is because we do with it what the people did with the serpent. Let's take a look and see what they did with the serpent. Second Kings 18. What? This must mean something. Okay, sorry. Okay, Second Kings 18, starting, oh, four, yeah. I'll just start in verse one. In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze servant, the serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. I guarantee you, if we had somewhere like a glow-in-the-dark copy of Paul's letter to the Romans, people would be worshiping it. Um, that's, my, that's my guess why the Lord has not preserved the autograph. Um, is because it, it's silly, but it's, it's, we see it with, with um, Roman Catholicism and relics and things. You know, there's this, there's this, there's a, I mean... And it's it's subtle, so the, the way that the the saints the uh, the happened is a gradual and completely understandable process. In the first instance, the early Christians, while they were being persecuted prior to Constantine's legalization of Christianity, um, they would gather on the the commemorative day when somebody had died faithfully. Remember, that's their big mark. If you're a witness, you died faithfully. You didn't recant. You you were faithful to the end, just like John. They're, they're reading the Gospel of John. They're seeing that John was faithful. He was a witness. And the people in their group who do that, they're like, way to go. And so the anniversary of... Let's pick, let's pick a nice Jewish name, Joe. Joe's... A year ago today, Joe died. Remember, he didn't recant. He went down faithful. And they'd go potentially commemorate on the spot where he died and celebrate the Lord's Supper and, and, and praise God. And that's all good. 
And then somebody's like, I'm going to take a rock from this spot to remember it by. And that's probably still good. And then eventually people are like, that's a holy rock. And then some people are like, that holy rock makes me closer. And that now you're, yeah. But you can see the movements really subtle and, and like from legitimately commemorating and honoring faithful men and women who were faithful under persecution to this is how I'm going to be saved, you know. And so eventually by the time of Luther, I mean, they got, they got enough, what's the quote? They've got enough nails from the cross to shoe every horse in Saxony. Um, you know, what? Sir, no. Um, and you know, all these relics are going everywhere and everything. And the people really superstitiously are thinking these things are like, you know, getting them out of hell. And it's not, but hey, nothing new under the sun. That's what they did here. Serena. That's not, it hasn't changed. No. When I was in Jerusalem getting in line to see the tomb, there's a woman there who's got like um, little tchotchkes she's going to sell and she's sticking them on the graves of whoever so that she can say they were blessed by, so she can sell them for more money. Well, no, I mean, R.C. Sproul's, um, R.C. Sproul's got a two-disc set on Roman Catholicism's gospel and the Protestant's gospel. And he talks about how when he went over to see the Vatican, he, he wanted to see the Sacra Scala. These are the steps the Crusaders took back from Jerusalem that supposedly Jesus walked on. If there's any credible thing where we can say we think Jesus stood and walked there, the Sacra Scala would be it, the, the set of stairs. And he said you couldn't get within like 100 yards of it because every square inch is covered of people who are climbing the steps on their knees with a rosary and there's like an indulgence price value. I mean, it's, and, and the point isn't to despise that. The point is to say, yeah, it's, it's human nature to worship these things, to put our trust in these things. And it's still alive and well and taking place right now. Um, so yeah, the Lateran, I think it's at the Lateran Church, the Sacra Scala. What? Yep. Thank you, Jake. Jake's the resident historian. So I just, okay. Okay. Questions on any of that stuff. So yeah, that's the end of the, the serpent. He had to smash it. Yeah, it had a name. They called it a name because if you're going to worship a god, you better call it something. So what do they call it? They called it Nahushtan. <laughs> Creative. Creative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Any other uh, thoughts, questions, complaints, haikus? Yeah, this is true. He made them drink their God last time. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy's, Jeremy's reference is, you remember the golden calf? There, Moses literally ground the calf up, mixed it with water, and made people drink it. So they'd see their God one more time in a more fitting environment. Sorry. I couldn't resist. Sorry, sorry. Christmas scatological humor. Okay. Um... I don't know. I don't know. Hezekiah just couldn't be as full-on boss as Moses, perhaps. Who knows? Um, okay. Any, anything else before we move on? Then let's go to John 5. So I've suggested that Jesus' statement, no one's gone up to heaven except the Son of Man has descended, is a claim of authority. That's what John the Baptist makes of it at the end of, the, of chapter 3. And this issue of Jesus' authority 
comes into sharp relief in chapter five. So in chapter five, the flow of the narrative, Jesus heals the man by the pool. The man by the pool goes and carries his mat. The Pharisees get mad because it's the Sabbath day and he's working on the Sabbath. And then they get in a conflict with Jesus. And Jesus ups the ante. Again, getting back to receiving Jesus' testimony on himself. Verse 17, Jesus answered, my father's working until now and I'm working. When we get there, this is a radical poke in the eye to the Pharisees. Um, all they've been debating so far is whether or not he's working on the Sabbath. And they're, they're mad. But if Jesus had simply said, look, guys, is this really work? And he makes that argument in John 7. The fact that he can make that argument and doesn't make it here means this escalation is intentional. In, in John 7, the people are debating this. He says, look, in your law, it's written, you shall circumcise on the eighth day. If the eighth day is a Sabbath day, you still circumcise on the eighth day. So you recognize in the law, there are some works of necessity, some things that take precedence over other things. Are you guys really upset that I made a whole man's body well on the Sabbath? Do you really think I'm breaking the Sabbath and working? And if he'd said that here, some of the Pharisees would have said, that's a good point. Some of them, would, they had a good debate. Maybe some people wouldn't have liked him and looked down their nose at him. Here's his response and said, my father works on the Sabbath, so I do too. I'm claiming divine prerogative. What God does, I do. And they don't miss that. <laughs> they, they get it. 318, this is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. First mention in John of people trying to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then from 19 to 29, he tries to explain what that means. Um, John 5, 19 to 29 is probably the most extensive um, explanation of Trinitarian relationships you're going to find in the Bible. Where Jesus, he's trying to guard against two errors. We're not going to work through this because I want to pick up in 30. But in, in 19 to 29, he wants to simultaneously say, yes, I am equal to my father. No, I am not in competition or opposition to him. I only do what he tells me to do. I'm in perfect lockstep and harmony with him. But yes, I am equal to him. He's trying to guard against little G God or polytheism. He's trying to, he's trying to, this is the, so... Now at 30, we get to, this is a pretty remarkable claim. If somebody showed up here and said, I can do whatever God does, I hope you'd have a certain amount of incredulity. I hope you'd say, oh, really? <laughs> and so Jesus here starts stacking up testimony and witnesses to that audacious claim. I can do nothing on my own, verse 30, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So the first Wit line of testimony Jesus points to as he's made this audacious claim of deity is John the Baptist. You guys recognize, or most of Israel recognize, God had raised up a real prophet in John, and John testified about me concerning these things, which is one of the reasons I think why John's gospel has already showed us John saying he is from above, he's above all, he's greater than me because he preexisted me. John is not simply saying Jesus is a great prophet, he's claiming Jesus' divinity. And so 
on that line, we've got the witness of John the Baptist. Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And Jesus' miracles, his works are unprecedented. There are, contrary to the popular opinion, there are not a ton of miracles in the Bible. They're grouped. Moses does a number of them. Moses' ministry, there's a bunch of miracles. Elijah and Elisha, you got a grouping of miracles, and then you get Jesus and his apostles. There, as you read through the Old Testament, there really aren't that many miracles like what Jesus is doing. Um, it's just that the miraculous stories we do have become popular, and the kids like them with the flannel graph, and you get the kids' story. But, and so those are the ones we tend to know well. Um, but they're really not all over the place. And Jesus' miracles, even in that category, is, is of a whole nother tier. He feeds 5,000 people. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, he uh, takes a man born blind. And in every instance, it's like the hardest case. It's, he does it long distance in chapter 4 with a nobleman's son. And so his miracles testify to his authority. Next, um, Next, so the first line of witness, John the Baptist. Second, his miracles. Third, verse 37. Um, and the father who sent me himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have not seen. Twice in Jesus' life, at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And there are witnesses to that. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to me. Fourth line of witness, the Old Testament scripture. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not love the, you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory that comes from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, for whom you've set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But I do not. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus testifies, and he points to four other lines of testimony: John the Baptist, his miracles, the Father, and the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's making. Aud I say audacious, but he grand claims. I mean, this, this is why C.S. Lewis said, you can have him as Lord, liar, or lunatic. You can't have him as a good teacher. Good teachers don't claim to be equal with God. Um, he, he's, either the, he's either who he said he was, he's a liar, or he's insane. That, that's, that's your options. That's what you're left with. What you, what the one option you can't have is I think he's got a good ethic and he's a good moral teacher and we've got a lot to learn from him. Like, no, people that make claims like this, if they're not true, run. Okay, 10 minutes to go. Questions? Yes, Siobhan. So we have the scripture, the yeah. Old Testament. The Jews had it. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't like, it doesn't seem like Jesus said, you know, these prophecies, one, two, you know, all, yeah. and pointed them out and said, mm -hmm. did I not fulfill this? Did I not fulfill mm -hmm. this? You know, so I guess what, 
I'm assuming some of the Jews did look at that. And, oh, yeah. But so what, I guess what, pe- I know that the Jews think their Messiah is still coming. But right. what of those prophecies, I guess, do they not believe maybe Jesus fulfilled? Does that? Yeah. So, so let me work backwards and get to your question. First, what did God do to prepare the way for Jesus? The Baptist. What was the Baptist message? Yeah, repent. So it sure looks like from Jesus' pretty much full and complete success with the disciples of John the Baptist, that those people who came out and heard John the Baptist's message are later the same people who believe in Jesus. That the, the one who came to prepare the way did in fact prepare the way. So it sure looks like in the Gospel of John, like when we get to 8, the basis upon... Let's, I mean, let's turn to John 8. And again, as John's Gospel is helping clarify what saving faith is and isn't, this is another one of the places we get people believing, and yet whatever it is they have that's called faith isn't saving. Um, Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you'll know that you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they don't like that because it implies they're not free already. And again, what, what the offense is, is they're, sinfulness and their inability. And so they say, the Jews who believe in him, you're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Which on the face of it is a pretty ridiculous claim. How many, let's, let's count, how many people have enslaved Israel? Egypt, Babylon, the Persians, Rome, at various times, the Philistines, right? So the Greeks afterwards. So they, they get, there's a long list of people who've, who've enslaved Israel. Um, Jesus answered them, making it clear he doesn't mean physical slavery. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So given this new information, what Jesus has said, you are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. You will know the truth, and the truth will free you from your slavery to sin. And oh, they don't like that. They don't like that. And we get some indication. You asked me earlier, like, what was Nicodemus' understanding? Well, this is a common line in Judaism's understanding. And it's basically, okay, I got to pause. Let me just keep going and then I'll come back around. Um, so, so I know you are the offspring of Abraham. That's their claim. We're, we're Abraham's offspring. We're the promised blessed people. We're the chosen people. Fair enough. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, "If now pause. When Jesus is speaking of parentage, we, because of genetics and everything, we think of it primarily 
like you know you go on Mary Povich and they do the test and everything. Um, I've never I've heard I've never seen that, but I've heard. For them, father and son is a much more functional category. Jesus' argument is going to be like, let me show you what family tree you're acting like. If God were your father, he loves me, so you'd love me. You don't. You're trying to kill me. There's another person who's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You're acting like that family. That's, that's the basis of family Jesus is using. Functional, um, economic. So... Um, I know what I have seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if you, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but I, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Now he's going to speak plainly. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Someone else paraphrases when he lies, he's speaking his native tongue. Um... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So so the, uh, the Jews here, and I think consistently, stumble over the notion that y- you need to be freed from slavery to sin. Then they, they participate in the temple worship system. This gets back to the issue of it's not enough to acknowledge you've made mistakes. The most proud person I've ever met in my life would admit, you know, I've made mistakes. But this notion that now I need fundamental head-to-toe cleansing, that from inside and out I'm corrupt, yeah, Israel stumbled over that. And part of it's because they've suffered and been mistreated for so long. Um, there's this sort of solidarity in suffering. I mean, they've made it through the Holocaust. They made it through, I mean, to quote, I've heard this attributed to Mark Twain. I, I've not found the original source, but apparently Mark Twain said, Israel is the anvil that wore out a dozen hammers. Well, there's no Babylonians around anymore. No Medo-Persians around anymore. No Philistines around anymore. But here's Israel, same people, same language, same land. Like, whatever, how do you explain that? And, and so that group identity of suffering, they, they, I really think they're, they're waiting for the Messiah to come and say, thank you for holding the fort. Good job. I got it from here. And so when their Messiah comes and says, you're just as unclean as the Gentiles and the Goyim, you need a head to toe cleansing. You need God's spirit to work in you. You are powerless and helpless to draw near to me unless my spirit moves in you is a big stumbling block. The fact that their Messiah, rather than exalting them, dies an ignominious criminal's death. This is what Paul says. The other place Paul comments this, 1 Corinthians um, 1. By and large, they stumble over um, the offensiveness of the cross. And again, we're so used to the cross being a Christian symbol, but to come with an, I've got good news. What's the good news? The God of this world was crucified as a scum of the earth and a criminal. It's a, it's, it's a preposterous message unless it's true. And, and especially when they know the Messiah is going to be great and he's going to be powerful. Read Psalm 2. He's going to rule from coast to coast. The kings of the earth 
told to honor him and rejoice with trembling lest he destroy them in his fury. Messiah doesn't get nailed to a tree. This is what the Jews stumble over. Um, and so in 1 Corinthians, let me get there, 1, 18, um, I'm in 2 Corinthians. Hold on one second, please. Here we go. 1 Corinthians. Okay, there it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, verse 18, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made the foolishness, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Which is to say, and, and this is partly why we don't want to remove, we, we ought not to be embarrassed from some respects of the, the foolishness of this message. I mean, if you stand back, God came to earth in a small, relatively unknown people, died a criminal's death, and through his death, we can be saved. God intends the message at some levels to be foolish. In other words, he wants to humble us. That's what it's saying right here. Um, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And he gave them a number of signs. We're reading in John's gospel, but they just keep wanting them. They keep, give me some more signs. Give me some more signs. Give me some more signs. And Greeks want wisdom. So Greeks have this big philosophical system rooted on Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And again, this is going to be foolishness to them because of that. And he says, for the, um, but to those who are called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ now, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So that gives us also some insight into Israel's rejection of Jesus. But yeah, there, there are threads in the Old Testament of the triumphant Messiah and of the suffering servant, and Israel seems to really grab onto that triumphant Messiah, what we would call the second coming. Which, by the way, Joy to the World is not a Christmas song. It's a second coming song. It's talking about the curse being undone and thorns being undone. I don't, somehow it became associated with Christmas, so I'm glad to sing it. But it's really about the second coming. Um, and it's, anyway, um, just, just if, I'm, if, I'm ruining John, if I'm ruining the red letters, let me ruin your favorite Christmas song, too. Okay. Yes. Yes. Jake, oh, who's got the mic? Matt. I got kind of yeah. a follow-up to okay. that. When we think about where we send or where Christians go on for ministry, yeah. Muslim countries, yeah. agnostic countries. What what is the deal? Like it seems like we're always shoulder to shoulder with Israel, Jewish people. What we don't ever doesn't feel like there's the the push to try to help the Jewish people along. 
Sure. Um, brief answer because we're at time. I am aware of missionaries to Israel. I am aware of those who are witnessing to the Jews. And I must bemoan the fact that some versions of American Christianity, I'll call it Christianity low KC, want it. Here's, here's the balancing act. Israel are, is the, the promises of God came through the Jews. Our, our Bible is a Jewish book written almost entirely by Jews, uh, except for a chapter of Daniel written by Nebuchadnezzar and Luke, who's Greek. But, but mo- by the most part, we got a Jewish book. We got a Jewish Messiah. And God is not finished with his people. And so the promise to Abraham, whoever honors you, I'll honor. Whoever um, treats you lightly, I will, I will despise. It seems to still be standing. And, and the Jews are remarkable people. I mean, the amount of Nobel Prizes gone out to Jews compared to their percentage in the population is remarkable. Um, the, the way that they seem to rise just with a work ethic and other things, they just, they were remarkable people. There can be a temptation because of that, because they're so prominent in the Old Testament, because of we share ethically, we have so much in common with them in regards to ethics. I mean, heck, the Jews and we recognize the Ten Commandments as a, as a good, righteous representation of morality. So practically, from a geopolitical sense, coexisting with Jews in regards to like what's tolerated in the society, yeah, that'll be pretty, pretty common. That'll be pretty easy enough to do. There can be a view amongst some to think the Jews almost have their own inroad with God apart from Christ, which we need to say no. Um, uh-uh. Paul says they're enemies of the cross in Romans. And so I think we need to have a respectful stance towards the Jews, but absolutely, they're just as lost and just as hellbound apart from Christ as any Gentile or any Roman or you or me. Um, and based on their Jewishness alone, they have no more advantage than Nicodemus had based on his Jewishness alone. So, okay, that's time. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.